It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. Last week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced they were easing guidance for vaccinated Americans, allowing those fully vaccinated to stop wearing masks in outdoor settings and in most indoor situations. But after months of mixed messaging from both the CDC and the White House regarding the coronavirus restrictions, many Americans are confused, frankly, by the timing of the announcement, which came as many states and local communities already began lifting mask mandates. President Biden talked about the situation Monday in hopes of setting the record straight. So this is a good time to bring in our all-star panel. USA Today, Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page, editor and CEO of The Dispatch, host of The Dispatch podcast, Steve Hayes, and founding editor at The Washington Free Beacon, AEI resident fellow, Matthew Connetti. Susan, let me start with you. Is this an issue for this White House, this kind of floating regulations in different places and interpreting what the CDC really means. I think it's a I think it's a uh, complication. Uh, You know, the credibility is the number one asset they have when dealing with a pandemic. It's the issue on which they attack President Trump and his administration for not following the science, for not being clear with people. So I think it's important that uh, that the Biden administration convey a clear message to Americans who want to follow the rules, who want to be safe but want to make sure they understand exactly what they're supposed to do. So I think not a fatal error, but it's been a little messy these past couple of days. Matthew? You know, Brett, I've been so busy celebrating the fact that I don't have to wear a mask any longer that I haven't spent too much time dwelling on the politics of it. But the way I read the situation is that the CDC has been completely backward on vaccination up until this point. They, despite the rising numbers of vaccinations and the fall in COVID cases, the CDC was persisting in this idea that we would have to wear masks, perhaps indefinitely. I think finally, last week, they realized that people need an incentive to get the vaccine. And the way to give them is an incentive is to say, once you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear the mask. So I'm glad that they made this decision. And while it definitely posed a major communications challenge for the White House, I think that will pass in time as most people join me in partying. <laughs> and it may, Steve, see, uh, see some increase in vaccinations just by linking it to that. But, you know, there's all kinds of controversy about whether you have the vaccine passport and you, you had double vaccines, whether um, what businesses can or cannot do. Uh, but messaging seems pretty simple what we can do. 
Yeah, look, I think I think Susan's right. You know, the, the main thing that we need from the CDC is to have the CDC be an effective guide uh, to, to how we uh, exit from the pandemic. And really, especially for a, a president who campaigned so hard against the incompetence that we saw from the Trump CDC and the very, of course, there was the, the warring uh, between the White House and the CD and the mixed messaging. In this case, the mixed messaging is is coming mostly from the CDC and the Biden administration together. And you had Rochelle Walensky, who's the, the head of the CDC, say things over the past couple of weeks that just sort of left you scratching your head. I mean, she made a comment uh, on the Sunday shows yesterday about how we've learned a lot about the uh, effectiveness of vaccines over the past couple of weeks. You look around, you see, we've got 150 million people who have been vaccinated already. What more have we just learned in the past couple of weeks? She said that she, in congressional testimony last week, that she was uh, going to keep her 16-year-old vaccine-eligible son from going to summer camp. And when you have parents around the country trying to make these really tough decisions, um, you need clarity from the person who's supposed to be the lead spokeswoman on this. And we have most definitely not gotten that from her. And I guess that's where it really hits home, Susan, is the parent thing. I mean, when you when you're facing this relaxation of uh, mandates and masks for uh, adults who've been vaccinated, yet you still have schools saying that they're going to have to wear masks, even though the risk for kids is exponentially lower and now kids are starting to get vaccinated. So there's a lot of parents saying, wait, why does my young kid have to wear a mask all school year? Right. And good luck getting a seven year old to wear a mask all day. Um, on the other hand, you know, you, you, at the moment, you have to be 12 to get a vaccine uh, safely under the CDC recommendations. So there are kids who aren't going to be vaccinated. I, I guess I, I take the sunny view that Matthew does. Maybe I'm also celebrating not wearing a mask, that this is a problem that's going to work itself out, that parents are going to feel more reassured through this summer about the pandemic being under control and being safe to send kids back to school. School districts are going to try to make, I'm sure, science-based decisions on what exactly they expect their students and their teachers to do. I'm hopeful that we're getting to the point where after a terrible almost a year and a half, we are going to be back into something that feels like normal. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I want to turn topics, uh, Matthew, this ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline. You know, we don't know all the details, but it's looking more and more like they paid the ransom. Um, and where we are as far as a country in dealing with something like this and how vulnerable we may be uh, to these kind of attacks. Well, I think the clear 
uh, takeaway is that we don't know how to deal with attacks such as this spread. I mean, this was a hostage situation. The cyber criminals had taken hostage one of the most important pipelines in the country. There was panic buying um, throughout the Southeast, including where we live in the Washington, D.C. area. I spent an hour looking for gas last week. Uh, fortunately, it was during your program, so I was able to listen to, to you uh, over the radio, <laughs> but other people were not as lucky as I, Brett. Um, <laughs> we have to figure out a policy in order to deter attacks such as this. I am afraid that when I look at the situation, I think Colonial did the least best option, which was to simply um, pay the ransom and, and um, get, it, get it over with. But that will certainly incentivize further attacks and we have to be prepared and, and figure out a way how we can deter them in the future. And Steve, uh, you know, the, it's kind of vague when you think about uh, the ties, whether some nation state is involved, in this case, Russia, in at least pro providing safe haven for these criminal operations or somehow being tied to them. And if we found out, and, and the administration is saying they don't believe Russia was directly tied to it, but if we did, does that qualify as an act of war? Yeah, I mean, you made ex exactly the right distinction there. The, the question is whether this is one of uh, a wide variety of groups that Russia has es essentially welcomed, put out a welcome sign for so that they can operate uh, from Russian soil or with Russian approval, um, at least without Russian interference. Um, Russia's been very aggressive in its cyber activity. Uh, they, they want people to know that they are uh, mucking things up around the world, and they like to take credit for it. They sort of pound themselves on the chest, showing what they've done. The, I think that what we don't know yet is whether the Russian government had any foreknowledge of these attacks and whether they were in any way direct, directed by the Putin government or any of its intelligence services. And we just don't have enough information on that right now. But either way, whichever one of those two scenarios, obviously the latter is much more serious. And I do think we would have to, to consider it an act of war. Um, but even if it's just the former, the United States government has to take this seriously. And there have to be reprisals for Vladimir Putin and his regime for this kind of activity taking place uh, with Russian blessing, or again, at least without Russian interference or, or Russians, the Russians acting to stop these things. Th th this is not the only group uh, to operate this way. And uh, it's been a problem. If you talk to people who work in intelligence on cyber issues, They've been sort of sounding alarms about this uh, and Russia in particular for years. And I think they're growing increasingly frustrated. That the United States hasn't found a way to really help put Vladimir Putin back in his box on these issues. Susan, the administration's critics say that um, the countries that are against us uh, and have been uh, seem emboldened uh, in this early part of the Biden administration. Uh, China uh, acting out, Russia, uh, now Iran, um, it looks like funneling money to Hamas that is facilitating some of these rockets, uh, these thousands of rockets that are, are going into Israel. Um, do you see it that way, that, that these countries are feeling emboldened in a different way? Well, we naturally see these countries challenging and testing the new administration. We would expect that at the advance, uh, at the beginning of any new uh, American administration. You know, it's, it's interesting, the, the, I think the, 
the response from the Biden administration has been interesting and a little surprising. I think there was surprise when Biden, for instance, ordered the withdrawal of all U.S. forces from Afghanistan by September 11th, despite concerns among uh, some of his administration about kind of abandoning the field there. We see him taking not as active a role in response to this terrible violence in Israel between the Israelis and the Palestinians, as some would like him to take, including many in his, in his own party. He seems very focused on a few issues, on focused on the pandemic, focused on restarting the U.S. economy, on his uh, big spending programs that are going to be coming up shortly, and kind of less taking a less muscular role in the world that I think some of us might have predicted. Yeah. Matthew, uh, how do you see it? Well, I agree that the different um, authoritarian states are challenging Biden. I also think that this is an example of a White House that has kind of wanted to be in charge of the narrative, wanted to set the agenda and felt like it was doing so in the opening months of its presidency, but is increasingly at the mercy of events as all White Houses come to be. I mean, you have the colonial pipeline, you have the bad inflation numbers, you have um, the violence uh, between uh, Hamas and uh, Israeli retaliation. None of these things uh, were anticipated by uh, the Biden administration, much like the border crisis uh, wasn't anticipated. And and when you get to one of these uh, blindside situations, they're not as sure-footed. They definitely respond uh, as quickly as as they as they can when they sense a political danger, um, but I don't think they figured out um, that their their bold vision of domestic reform is increasingly going to be tied up in events that they cannot control. Speaking of which, uh, Steve, the uh, piece from Axios kind of matches what we've heard is that some key Democrats are now a little concerned that as this um, domestic policy rolls out, that maybe they're pushing too fast, too much, uh, that it'll affect inflation even more than we're seeing currently. Yeah, well, you know, I I think Larry Summers, who suggested as much uh, when a lot of the spending was being first discussed, is not yet taking a victory lap, but it has to be looking and and thinking, boy, I I told you so. It'll be interesting to see whether that the, 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 the growing rumblings you're hearing about some Democrats being concerned turns into actual concern and something the White House has to deal with. I mean, if you remember, President Biden has thus far proposed more than six trillion dollars in new spending uh, just in these first couple months of his administration. And I think part of the, the certainly the, the problem that Republicans are, are highlighting is the, the overall total and the massive amount of spending without even really serious ways of, of proposing to pay for it. Um, certainly not ways that, um, that Republicans are going to go along with. But I think there's also a disconnect in some of the things that the Biden administration has called priorities and what the spending actually addresses. To go back to, to cybersecurity, what we were just talking about, you have the Biden administration spending proposing $2.4 trillion in spending on infrastructure, including a lot of things that I would say are not actually infrastructure, and just a 5.5% increase for the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, so an increase of $110 million. Again, you have people in the, the intelligence 
community who are screaming at the top of their lungs that this needs more attention. We can't afford to have these kinds of things. The costs to having more colonial pipe pipeline shutdowns, the cost to the economy are far greater than that kind of a, a, a small budget increase. And if you're going to talk about it as a serious issue, you should put dollars behind it like it's a serious issue. Yeah. And you know, that has not happened on Capitol Hill. The executive order does it's pretty broad and sweeping that he uh, did sign last week. Susan, last thing, what's something that we're not covering that might be something that is something, you know, that's going to pop up, you think? Well, or not covering enough. You know, let's here's one thing that's surprises me a little and that is the possibility for actual bipartisan agreement on something. And uh, I'll tell you one example of that is what's happening with the issue of how you treat uh, sexual harassment cases in the military. This has been a terrible problem. It's the kind of defied solution. There's been a lot of reluctance to uh, second guess or countermand the military command structure. There are now enough votes in the Senate to get through the compromise measure that Senator Gillibrand and Senator Ernst have been working on. Uh, and I think that deserves a little notice since we've so totally lost our bipartisan muscle in this country that you see it happening somewhere, ought to pay some attention to it. Yeah, it may also happen with police reform. Um, it's looking, heading that way. We shall see. Panel, thank you so much. Here's a bit of historical trivia. June 6th, 1833, President Andrew Jackson stepped on a Baltimore and Ohio passenger coach becoming the first ever president to ride a railroad train, also known as an iron horse. During the time, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad started operating in 1828 with horse-drawn cars, but after a steam train nearly outraced a horse during a public demonstration in 1830, steam power was added. By 1831, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad completed a line from Baltimore to Frederick, Maryland, which the aforementioned President Jackson traveled two years later. That will do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Susan, Steve, and Matthew, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.